If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke. And actually, let's start in chapter 1, Luke uh, chapter 1. Just a brief reminder, we're jumping back in this morning in in our uh, series through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, so I just want to do a brief reminder from the first chapter why Luke wrote this book to begin with. We get the reason in verse 1 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why did Luke write the Gospel of Luke? To provide you an orderly account of what has happened so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That sounds like it's coming here, doesn't it? Well, let's pray together, and then we'll study the Scripture together. Father, uh, none of us can ignore the sirens, so whatever that situation is, Lord, we pray for your faithfulness to be shown, your might, and your character. And then, Father, as we turn our attention back to the Gospel of Luke, It's given to us that we might have certainty about what we've been taught. And we live in a very uncertain time. In fact, we live in a time when most people believe that you cannot be certain about much of anything, particularly about you. But we believe we can have certainty about who you are, about what you have done, so that that we establish what we believe not on conjecture or tradition but on the word of God so use this word for our great good and your deserved glory we pray in Jesus name amen well let's go to Luke 6 that's that's where we're we left off so that's where we're going to to pick up Luke 6 and verse 20 says a remarkable thing Um, Luke 6 verse 20 he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said now it's just one little verse and we're going to study more verses but I just want you to think that's a pretty remarkable statement that Jesus Christ lifted up his eyes and looked at a group of people that's pretty remarkable isn't it I mean have you ever been had somebody hold them hold you in their gaze like really fix their eyes on you and depending on who the person is it's you know either you know a good thing or you know sort of awkward or dreadful Jesus, Jesus says he lifted up his eyes. And so one thing that it says to me is that when he spoke to people, he really looked at people. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody who won't look at you? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm by nature pretty shy, and so it's something that I have to work on, really looking people in the eye. And Jesus isn't just talking over them. He, he's not just talking, hoping that he's looking at them. It says he, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and then he began to spoke. Most people live trying to please somebody. You ever feel like somebody's watching you or looking at you? Maybe it's your boss or maybe it's your coworker or maybe it's a friend or maybe it's somebody in your family and you just kind of live your life in order to, 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 to look okay in their eyes. Jesus' eyes are upon you. If you're going to please anybody, please him. If you please him, it doesn't really matter what anybody else thinks. And then, just by extension, if you're trying to please everybody else, you're probably not going to 
going to please him. That's what Galatians 1, 1 talks about. I mean, life's so easy to just spend, you know, I was, I was praying for our college students who, who went to college this semester. And I was thinking about that season of my life and how easy it is just to go through every step of life answering somebody's question or somebody else's expectation. Those college students, they got to, 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 to wherever they are this, this semester. You know what the first question they're going to be asked is? What are you majoring in? Right? They just decided to go to college. Right? They finally answered the question when they were seniors in high school. Here's the question they got. Where are you going to go to college? They finally got that one answered. And then before they can even relax about it, what are you going to major in? It won't be too long. There'll be, in there, there'll be an upperclassman, and they're going to get this question. Where are you going to work? And then it won't be too much longer where they ask this question. When are you going to get married? And then suppose they get married. It won't be too long before they get this question. When are you going to have children? Then they're going to have children. It won't be too much longer before they're asked, uh, when do your children go to college? And, when and then a little bit longer, well, when are you going to retire? You know, there, there's a question that's going to be asked of you every season of your life. So my encouragement to you is don't spend your life trying to answer those questions. Don't spend your life wrapped up in the ifs and whens. That's how you waste your life. Always the next if. Always, well, when I get to college, life will, when I finally graduate, well, when I get married, well, when I have children, when they're out of diapers, when they're at school, when they're graduated, when I'm retired. And then before you know it, life's a vapor and it's gone. And you wasted it answering ultimately irrelevant questions. Jesus lifted up his eyes. These are the eyes you want to, 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 to know are focused on you. And he doesn't just look at them, he speaks to them. And then he gives a very important collection of statements. We'll read 20 to 26. Blessed are you, you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you have for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all, speak, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Now, did you just read what I read? It seems upside down, doesn't it? It, it, it seems backwards. And that's exactly right. The way Jesus views things and the way the majority of people view things are absolutely contradictory absolutely upside down. So let's talk about, let's really got two points this morning. Those the Lord pronounces as blessed, point one, can anybody guess number two? Number two, the Lord, number two, those who the Lord pronounces woe over. Blessed and woe. Blessing and woe. That's the title of the sermon. And so, so let's just look at, first of all, those whom the Lord pronounces blessed. And the application's pretty s- simple, pretty straightforward. You want to be one who the Lord says blessed over and not woe to. Everybody's going to get one of those two statements. So let's, uh, let's aim for the blessing. Who are the blessed? First of all, when I look at this passage of Scripture, this first, first collection, you see that he uses the word blessed or blessed. It's kind of one of these Bible words we don't quite know how to pronounce, right? Is it blessed or blessed? Well, let's just go with blessed. He says it four different times. 
Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And so, so let's, let's take the, uh, the specifics. First of all, he says, blessed are those who are poor. Now, the question is, what kind of poor are we talking about? Are we talking about the financially poor? The, the, those that don't have a lot of money? The, the destitute? Well, I don't think so, based on Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is recorded as saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, uh, at times, being financially poor helps you get a perspective of spiritual poverty. Jesus does say it's very difficult, we'll get to this in a moment, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the reason that is, is if a man's rich, he has a hard time understanding how poor he is in real life, like in what really matters. If you want to know how wealthy you are, you add up everything that money cannot buy and death cannot steal. That's your, that's your portfolio, okay? That's what you actually possess, why Jesus says, if you're going to have treasures, you better put them in heaven where rust doesn't come and moth doesn't come and where thieves cannot break in and steal. He says very simply, wherever your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. So so it's not talking about necessarily the financially poor or the materially poor. It's talking about those who are spiritually poor. Now, what does that mean? And why does he begin there? The, The word poor, the Greek word means not just kind of struggling. It means you just destitute, got nothing, beggar, been driving around town and seeing the folks with the signs, begging for food. Jesus says, blessed are you when you do that spiritually. So what does that mean? Well, every last one of us, we're born into sin, so we're born hardwired to think that we've got something to offer. <laughs> what do you got to offer the Lord? Your good works, filthy rags. Your good deeds, not so good. You're calling them good. He didn't call them good. Well, we don't have anything to offer him. If we're to be made right with him, it all comes by grace. It's by grace you are saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not by work so that no one may boast. When we get to glory, none of us are going to say, man, I earned my spot here. You know what we're all going to say? If you're there, I got this by grace. Spiritually poor. And notice what it says, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, one thing I want you to note about the blessed is notice the the tense of our verbs here. The first one's in the present tense, and then all the rest will be future tense. When is the kingdom of God yours? Right now. Blessed are the poor for yours. Does it say will be the kingdom of God or is the kingdom of God? What's it say? Is the kingdom of God. If you're born again, if you've come to a point in your life where you realize, I don't have anything to offer God. Everything I have is by his grace. You, you remember what Jesus talked about when the two men went to pray, one the Pharisee and one the old uh, wretched sinner. And the Pharisee got there and said, oh, Lord God, and used all these dramatic words and phrases. And then the, the old sinner stood there and beat his chest, the scripture says, wouldn't, he, wouldn't even lift his eyes to the heavens and said, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said one of those men went home justified. You know who it was? The poor begging spiritually. Man, I hope we realize we are given the kingdom of God by grace. We didn't earn it by the sweat of our brow or by our good works. And it is also ours right now. That's why I said how wealthy you are is really you add up everything that money cannot buy. Can you buy the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. And death cannot steal. Is death going to take away the kingdom of God? Actually, no. That's why Paul said to to, to live as Christ, to die is gain. And the reason death is gain is because we no longer will live by faith but by sight and we'll see the kingdom of God. We'll have our full inheritance. But you can rest assured right now it's coming you, you, you're already 
God it in a way is what Jesus is saying. And then it shifts and everything does become future tense, okay? So blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And some of you are saying, I count for that. It's about lunchtime. I'm hungry right now. But he's not talking about food. Again, Matthew's gospel is helpful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. I want you to think about this statement and just hang with me for a moment. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Then I want you to hold that statement in your mind. I just want you to know if you remove the word righteousness from it, you're also going to have to remove the word satisfied. Because if you hunger and thirst for something other than righteousness, you will never, ever, 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 ever be satisfied. So a quick question for all of us is, what are you, what are you really hungering for right now? What are you hungering for? Even if you get it, you're still not going to be satisfied. You're still not going to be satisfied. That's the way sin works, right? That's the way the world works. It's never enough. Aren't you just blown away sometimes when you read the headlines of what some people choose to do? They got everything in the world and it's still not enough. And then they keep reaching and reaching until they finally overreach. Sin brings forth death. And there's so much more offered to us than what we often choose to settle for. It says, you are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. And then he makes this really strange statement, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now, what kind of weeping is is this? Well, back to the statement, most of us are hardwired for self-salvation, self-righteousness. The weeping is the response when we realize we can't do it. You ever failed just miserably at something? The answer for all of us is yes. And, And we've all failed miserably at trying to save ourselves. And when you realize you cannot do it, it brings about this brokenness. You want a biblical example about it? How about the three days the Apostle Paul spent blind outside of Damascus when he realized everything he had believed, everything he had taught, everything he had fought for, everything he had proclaimed, everything he had written and signed his name to up to that point was 100% wrong. He says, blessed are those who weep now. The implication is, the implication is, you're weeping now, but it's only going to last for a night, and joy comes in the morning. But those who are laughing now, the weeping is coming. And we'll get to that, as he says, in just, just a moment. I don't know if you've ever had a time in your life like this. God really got a hold of my life when I was 12 years old. <laughs> and I spent a night just weeping, like the, like the can't hardly breathe, can't talk, weeping. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that you've got to do that in order to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when God showed his light in my life and exposed some things that were sinful in my life and, and all my trying and all my hard working and all my trying to do this and that wasn't enough and never would be enough, but at the same time how he had been merciful to me and justified me in Christ Jesus. It's a time of weeping. The, the, the promise is pretty remarkable. He says, you shall laugh. You know what the Greek word for laugh means? It means laugh. You know, when you get to heaven, the first thing you're probably going to do is you're just going to laugh. You're like, how could this be? A laughter of joy at having been redeemed. And then 
He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you. That doesn't seem to make any sense, does it? I mean, isn't life all about getting people to like us and include us and love us? He says, blessed are you when they don't, when they hate you, when they exclude you. Have you ever been left out? Ever been excluded? Everybody everybody got together, but they didn't invite you? We've talked often about my hope with Billy Graham coming up in November. uh, Billy Graham turns 95 in November. Spent his whole life proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And and he says he wants to preach one more um, crusade, so to speak, before perhaps the Lord would take him home. And he's going to do it a little bit differently. And and we've talked about it, and we'll talk about it more as the day approaches, inviting people within our church family to say, we'll invite people into our homes, and then they'll hear this message from Billy Graham, and then, and then I'll get up and stand for two or three minutes and share my testimony, invite people to come to faith in Christ. And you know what the biggest obstacle to doing that is? Is this verse right here. They'll think I'm strange. You know what? They probably, <laughs> they probably will they'll identify me as one of those uh, religious fanatics. Well, we're living in a day where you're either going to be considered a hypocrite or a fanatic. So let's just all go on and jump in the fanatic boat, right? Let's just go on and just go on and make that decision. Well, if I, if I, if I invite them in and they come, it's just a sphere of man. What Jesus is talking about here, when they do hate you and when they do exclude you, when you walk into the break room at work and their conversation changes, oh, here's old goody two-shoes. Have you been there before? Oh, here's old such and such. They revile you and spurn your name as evil. Here's the, here's the big qualifier, by the way, on account of the Son of Man. What should you do in that day? I mean, we, we talk all the time about, uh, you know, middle school and high schoolers and the peer pressure they face. You, guess what? It's not a middle school, high school thing. You're 45, 55, 65-year-old, and you're still worrying about what does everybody else think about me? He says, he says you're blessed when people hate you and revile you and exclude you. He says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. Where? In earth? In this life? No. You see, all these future tense things, all these future tense things, we've counted our life as lost in this life because of so much to gain in the life that is to come, so much that the Lord has given us and so much more that he's going to in the future. He says, for great is your reward in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Now, we revere people in our day like Elijah and Jeremiah. Do you know what they were thought of in their own day, in their own generation? Elijah was the most hated man in Israel in his own day. Jeremiah, they despised him. They said, oh, here comes old goody two-shoes. Here comes that man preaching about judgment again. And they did that up to the moment. Here's that preacher of judgment until judgment came. And then you know what they said? They said, we should have listened to that man. I'd rather them say of me, we should have listened to them. We should have listened to him than for them to say he never said anything. Because that's, that's kind of where we're tempted to be. Can you imagine a coworker, a neighbor, a family member on that day when the reality of it all strikes, if they would say of you, you never said anything about this. You believed this. And you, didn't say, you knew this was coming and you didn't say anything. Popularity is not our reward. The presence of God is our reward. 
It's great in heaven. Now, we give out all sorts of rewards here in this life. The time person of the year, the most popular this, the beauty queen this, the this, that, and this. Don't aim for rewards here. Aim for rewards in the life that is to come. And then secondly, briefly, those whom Jesus pronounces woe. It says, first of all, bless, uh, but woe to you who are rich. We don't hear statements like that very much, do we? I mean, most of us, man, if we could have a million dollars, that'd be awesome. But Jesus says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. That's an interesting word, and I did a little bit of a word study on it because when you come across a word that seems a little um, important, but you don't hear it very much, the place that you begin, uh, this little Bible study tool is, is that word used anywhere else in this same book? So in in other words, does Luke ever use that word consolation somewhere else in the Gospel of Luke? Who who, who thinks he does? Yeah, well, why else would we be talking about it? So go with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 25, where consolation is used again. Remember when they bring Jesus to the temple, and here's this righteous man named Simeon. Verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Holy Spirit was upon him, so he's waiting. And that's, that's a good application for us. There's a lot of waiting involved in this life. He's waiting. Holy Spirit. And it had been revealed to him that by the Holy Spirit they would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit of the temple. And when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God. So here's this man. His consolation is not riches. His consolation is Christ. And please, God, be merciful for us in this culture that so esteems riches for us to see clearly that this world is passing away and all this stuff is of no account if, if we could but have Christ. Jesus says if the rich who've set their hearts on what they have, they've already received their consolation. And woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Well, what does that mean? Those who are so full of the world that they have no appetite for the things of God. I read this this week, and I thought it was pretty interesting, and I think it's got a spiritual application. It's an article written to parents of young children, warning them of how dangerous it is to give little children soda. All right, so, so let me just tell you a little bit about it real quick. Here's what they said. Number one, they gave nine statements. I don't know if we'll read every nine, all nine. Soda contains zero nutrients and is high in calories and sugar. Studies show a strong link between soda consumption and childhood obesity. Number two, soda suppresses the appetite so kids are less likely to eat nourishing foods. Some of you are already making the spiritual application, aren't you? Soda drinkers are less likely to get the recommended levels of vitamin A, calcium, and magnesium. Third, phosphorus, a common ingredient in soda, can deplete bones of calcium. Girls who drink more soda are prone to broken bones. Four, studies show a direct link between tooth decay and soda. Number five, caffeine is known to create physical dependence. 
Somebody just came under Holy Spirit conviction, didn't they? About your morning coffee. And upsets the normal balance of neurochemistry in the developing brains of children. Caffeine stimulates the, uh, the, the glands, I can't pronounce that word, somebody else could, without providing the nourishment it needs. Did you hear that? It stimulates the glands without providing the nourishment it needs. And what I'm trying to tell you is you could take soda out of this statement and put the world in, and that's the spiritual implication. The world contains zero spiritual nutrients. The world suppresses the appetites so that you're less likely to to desire nourishing foods. The reason that we can open up the Bible and study the words of Jesus this morning and it just comes down on your heart like water on a brick wall is that you are already full of the world. You have no appetite for Jesus Christ. If you've snacked on the devil's sweets all week and you think you're going to come in here on a Sunday morning and open up, let me get a word from God. It'll come across as there is no word from God. Not because there is no word from God, but because you have no appetite for the word of God because you're already full and you're full now. And Jesus says, if you're full now, you shall be hungry. There'll come a day when you realize, whoa, I totally messed up. Messed up. My appetite was for the world and the world is passing away. Drinking a lot of sugar, soda can lead to blood sugar disorders. Aspartame used in diet sodas is a brain toxin. We're just wondering who's going to order water today. (laughs) Drinking soda regularly can upset the fragile acid-alkaline balance of the stomach, creating a continuous acidic environment. Soda's dangerous. The world to your soul is much more dangerous. Woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall weep. This laughter talks about the self-satisfied. It's the smugness of the self-righteous. It's those who go through life laughing and they don't take anything seriously. And you can stand in front of them and say, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And what their response will be is to yawn and to not take it seriously and to go lay down their money and go to some terrible film, some movie that does nothing but mock the things of God. And woe to you when all people speak well of you. You go today and find out who the New York Times bestseller list is and you begin to pray for those authors. You find out who the most, or think about who the most famous people in the world are right now. Very few of them are going to heaven. The movie star who receives so much adulation and makes millions of dollars. The athlete where every room he walks in, every eye is on him, and he's constantly told how wonderful and great he is because he can score a basket, because he can hit a baseball, because he can make this money. What you realize is, if you look carefully enough, not many of them seem very happy. They're, well, to use Jesus' word, unsatisfied. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Well, if you're going to summarize it, come into a conclusion, there are those that Jesus says live for then and there, and then there are those who live for here and now. Blessed are those who live for then and there. Woe to those who live for here and now. We'll stand together and we'll pray together. Didn't have a time of invitation together. Father, thank you for 
the Scripture, that it's the Word of God. And then if we haven't heard it clearly enough to, to prayerfully hear the gospel, that we are not saved by being popular, we are not saved by being satisfied, we are not saved by accumulating much wealth in this life. And everywhere we go, we're told that's what life is about. We're not saved by those things. We are saved by the blood of Jesus. We want to be those that you would say blessed to and not woe to. So, Father, if we've got appetites for sinful things, I pray that by your grace and by your spirit, you'd expose them in our lives. That, that Father, if we have no hunger for you, that you would help us to realize that that is a symptom of seeking to be satisfied in the world. And if we can go day after day after day, prayerless, scriptureless, obedientless, help us not to ignore these symptoms. We have nothing to offer you, but blessed are the poor. We have no ground of our own to stand on, but blessed are the weeping. And this week, if we're excluded or hated or reviled or ignored, we will rejoice and be glad because our lives are not invested in this brief passing life, but in the life that is to come. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.